0: Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. Folks we are uh, exploring uh, issues in salvation. I wonder, um, William would you hand me a copy of one of those handouts behind you? I think I've, uh, is that an extra one? I got one, thank you, thank you. I got my notes in two different formats and uh I want to follow along, make sure I say what's, what I need to say in front of you. So we're going to look at tonight just a little differently. So we've been dealing with the doctrine of sanctification. We've been dealing with the doctrine of salvation. And what I wanted to do tonight is come back and talk about some things that when I taught at the Bible College, we kind of talked through various issues that you interact with, that I interact with in church life. And we're going to do so by looking at three phrases Uh, that I'm sure you've heard about, maybe even you've used those phrases, and what we're going to try to do is unpack them from from a perspective of a theological perspective. How do we think about these issues? How do we relate them? At first glance, they're going to look distinct. In other words, they're going to be three kind of separate theological issues. But at another level, they all come to a heading underneath God's work in salvation. And So that's the way we're going to look at them. So the first phrase is this one. Once saved, always saved. You've heard that phrase. What does that mean? How do we think about it as followers of Jesus? Uh, and and what, does that, what does that look like? Once saved, always saved. So D.A. Carson puts it this way. He writes, Genuine faith, by definition, perseveres. Where there is no perseverance, by definition, faith cannot be genuine. His point is this, that if there is a genuine conversion someone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then that person's faith is not just a faith that happens in a moment. It is a faith that lasts for a lifetime. Genuine faith is persevering faith. So when when we use that phrase, once saved, always saved, when I use it, that's what I mean by that. A genuine conversion experience in Christ is a faith that lasts, is a faith that has... Uh, as the book of Hebrews warns us over and over again, it's a faith that continues in Christ, not a faith that wavers, not a faith that wonders, not a faith that, that separates from God. The, the challenge with this phrase, I say the challenge, is when we look at individuals and they had some kind of statement, testimony, of coming to faith in Christ, and yet there is no fruit that's born out of that faith or they drift completely away from anything to do with church or church life and you wonder well is that true in their lives so what does the bible have to say about that let me give you a passage of scripture that i think that i think is tremendously important it's uh from john chapter 10 verse 27 it's what jesus says about his sheep so if you'll if you'll if you want to turn there, you can, but if you want to make note of it, you can read it later. John 10, 27, Jesus said this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So it carries with it the idea that those that are his not just, listen to this, not just believe in him, they follow him. Jesus has an expectation, and I think this is clearly articulated in the New Testament. Jesus never calls someone to salvation that he doesn't intend for them to follow him. There's no category in the New Testament for a Christian or a believer to be someone who professes faith in Christ and then doesn't follow Jesus. That, 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 that person is not found in the New Testament as a believer. Just not. Jesus indicates If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and and take up his cross and follow me. There is an understanding that belief in Christ means following Jesus. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. Notice what else he says. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The implication is this, genuine faith in Jesus is a faith that God makes real and God is the one that causes perseverance to take place in our lives. When we looked a few weeks ago at the the five points of Calvinism, one of those points was the perseverance of the saints. Our perseverance happens, genuine faith perseverance happens because Jesus is the one that saves. He's the one that converts. He's the one that changes us from within, salvation is from him, Then there's no one that can take that away from us. That's why he says no one can take us out of his hand. No one can take us out of the Father's hand. So the idea of perseverance is that idea that genuine faith results in an eternal security of salvation. Why? Because Jesus is the one that bought our salvation. Now, there is a difference. There is a difference between perseverance and assurance. And that's the blank there. There's a difference between perseverance and assurance. Perseverance is the reality that because salvation comes through Christ, it is something that will last forever. Assurance is that internal feeling that you and I have that we are saved. Meaning that there's a sense in which we know we're saved. You can persevere in your salvation and not feel like you're saved. Okay, Let me say that again. You can have genuine perseverance in your salvation where it is eternally secure and not feel like you are a believer. That happens. That happens for a whole host of reasons. It can happen for psychological reasons. You know, we're just struggling at a period of time in our lives. It can happen for uh, moral reasons. We can drift from God and from in our behavior. We can act in a way that's in discord with who God wants us to be. And that moral drift, that spiritual drift, we don't feel God or sense God in our lives as much as we ought to. That is absolutely possible. It can simply happen for spiritual reasons in the sense of doubt or insecurity. One of the, the greatest theological uh, gospel communicators of all time, C.H. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, pastored the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, pastored a megachurch before there were such things as megachurches. God used him mightily for decades of ministry uh, at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. C.H. Spurgeon never doubted his call to ministry, but on more than one occasion, he went through what he would call his fainting fits, where he would struggle and doubt his own conversion, God used him to preach to the masses, and people came to know Christ mightily in his ministry. And yet, Spurgeon doubted. So, there's a difference between perseverance—that means your faith lasts. God bought it. God assured. Uh, God made it happen. And being assured of your salvation. How do we gain assurance? I, I would encourage you if you if you're struggling with this or know someone who is struggling with the assurance of their salvation. There's a wonderful little book uh, by uh, Greg Gilbert entitled Assured. And he tells us this. He tells us that we're to look to Jesus for assurance, focus on the glory of God, the grace of Jesus, and the promises of God, not on your feelings. Feelings are terrible determiners of the genuineness of your faith. It's not the primary aim. Gilbert goes on to write, And I'm going to read this extended quote. The more trustworthy and faithful, so our focus needs to be on God. The more trustworthy and faithful you learn God to be, the more you will trust him and the more certain you will be in that trust. What this means, in the most practical terms, is that you need to take specific action to remove your eyes from yourself and plant them on God. Read books about God, about theology, about God who is and what he has done. Read them for God's own sake, to know him and love him and stand in awe of him, not just for the sake of figuring out what applicational nugget you can walk away with. Meditate on God's Trinitarian nature, even if you can't see an immediate application. Dwell on the intricacies of sacrifices and atonement, even if those details don't seem relevant. As you broaden your vision of God, you will find your love and awe of him deepening, And the result will be that you will trust him more. Your certainty that he will move heaven and earth to keep his promises will solidify. Even more, make sure you are a vital contributing member of a local church. Gather with brothers and sisters who are themselves engaged in the fight. Sing hymns of praise to God. Hear his word read and preached. Lift up your voice with them in prayer. What you will find is that fellowship with other believers will remind you of God's promises. Spiritually stabilize you, and reinvigorate you to continue in the fight. Often, the very best way to deepen our assurance of salvation is to peel our eyes off ourselves and put them on God and his people. Gilbert's point is this. If your struggle is with an assurance of your salvation, oftentimes our problem when we struggle with assurance of salvation is we're trying to make sense of our behavior, the level of our belief. Are we really right with God? And, and we look internally for that rather than externally at the one who has saved us and redeemed us. What we need to look at is God. Who we need to look at is Jesus. What we need to focus on are the promises of God. That's why Jesus said this when, when his disciples were questioning him about faith. Do you remember he used language like if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain? Remember that line? And if you and I are honest with ourselves, sometimes we don't feel like we have enough faith. Am I talking to anybody? I struggle with that. You know what Jesus' response to that really is? It's not the amount of faith that matters. It's who faith is in that matters. The object of our faith is far more important than the amount of faith that you and I possess in the object of our faith. In other words, our focus doesn't need to be as much internally. How much faith do I have? How well have I lived this week? How close do I feel to God? The, what I need to be thinking about is God. is who God is in Jesus Christ. Who Jesus is, has he always been faithful? What does Jesus say? So the issue with assurance is who we're, our focus is on. Now, let me give you the last last kind of observation here, though. So what do we do about those folks who we might say there is a disconnect between their profession and their fruit? Because you and I, every single one of us in this room, knows of someone or knows a few someones who made some sort of profession of faith, and our question might be, was their faith genuine? Where where does that leave us? For starters, I would say this. We are not their judge. Let me just say that out out loud. It is not my job or your job to judge someone's genuineness of salvation. It's just not. That's between them and God. And I promise you, God's not going to make a mistake. Okay? Okay? If God lets somebody into heaven, it'll be because their faith was genuine and they're really saved. If they don't make it to heaven, it'll be because their faith wasn't genuine and they're not really saved. And you and I don't have to worry about that. Meaning it's not our place to determine whether or not that's true in someone's life. And and that ought to take a giant weight off your shoulders and mine. It's It's not our place. It is our place to be concerned. There's absolutely nothing wrong with us knowing people whose fruit doesn't match their profession and to be concerned about them. So what do we do? We pray for them. We plead with them. The book of Hebrews is full of warnings for people in that category, and we ought to pray those warnings over them and encourage them. Now, it is our job as a church to be concerned about that very thing. So it is the responsibility of the church to practice regenerate church membership through administering baptism and conferring church membership. What do I mean by that? As a church, let me say this very humbly but also very clearly. As a church, when wilkes Baptist Church affirms baptism or administers baptism, or when we confer church membership, what we are saying is that we believe this person's testimony about their conversion to Jesus Christ. So, baptism means that we affirm, our elders, pastors, myself, Danielle, Tad, whoever it was, or any combination of those that it was that talked with them, we believe that their testimony of trusting in Jesus is, is genuine. They've articulated that, so we will administer baptism. In other words, we're inviting them to say publicly that they've trusted in Jesus, they're following Jesus as Lord, and so we're, we're inviting them to declare that publicly. By administering or conferring church membership as a body, we do that. I don't do that. You have to affirm that. By conferring church membership, what we're saying is this person has testified of their faith in Jesus. We're not judging their soul because there are plenty of church members that aren't really saved, but that's between them and God. It's not my job to know that. I don't know that. You don't either. But obviously that has happened in the lives of churches. But it is our job, as best we can, to practice regenerate church membership. Does that make sense? And so part of what we're going to be doing, what we as elders are working through, is how do we invite those people who have stopped attending our church? Because here's one way that, I mean, the most obvious way that we're concerned about someone's profession of faith is if they're a church member at a congregation, but they never show up. There's a concern, right? They, they say they love Jesus. They say they trust Jesus. They say they know Jesus based on their church membership. But they, they never show up at church. They never sing to God. They never pray to God. They never visibly among the body of believers. And so it's our job to kind of navigate that. As elders, it's our job to navigate that. As a church, it's our job to kind of you know work with those people, invite them back, pray with them, talk with them. And then if, if need be, it's our job to kind of determine if that person's not going to publicly affirm their church membership by attending Wilkesboro Baptist Church and supporting the church, then maybe they need to choose to either not have church membership here or something different needs to take place. Because their membership, by, by their membership being here, we're saying they're a follower of Jesus. I mean, that, that's our affirmation as a church. So as a congregation, it's important we're not their judges. Even, even dealing with church membership is not us judging their soul. It's simply us saying their lifestyle doesn't necessarily match what their profession says. And because of that, we, we don't want to be in the game of affirming something that their lifestyle doesn't show. And so those are things that as elders we're working through, uh, and we'll be getting information back to you. By the way, if there were ever to be a situation where someone in, whose membership is at Wilkesboro Baptist Church, who really didn't need to have a church membership or didn't intend to come back to church or anything of that sort, the church body has to, has to make that decision. You, you know, I, I, there's no group in the church that gets to say, you get kicked out of the church because you know, you're not attending the church. No, the body gets to say that. That's our job as a congregation. None of those decisions will ever be made apart from you working with us as a congregation member. Does that make sense? I'm just giving you a heads up on some things that will be taking place in the next months. We're going to reach out to those, some of those folks that aren't attending. I would encourage you, if you know somebody who's not attending church, that should be attending church, tell them you're praying for them. Tell them your church is praying for them. Invite them to reengage in the life of the church. It does, it does matter. Okay, so that is, uh, that is once saved, always saved. Let me give you a second one that we talk about when we deal with uh, Bible college students. It's the age of accountability. And I'm sure all of us have heard of that. At a certain age, God holds children and young adults accountable for their knowledge of right and wrong. And until they reach that age of accountability, then, uh, then their soul is in God's hands or something to that effect. Well, what does the Bible tell us about that? So here are some points to ponder. The first one is this. The Bible does not address this issue with the clarity we may, might like i'm just going to say that outright there i i wish the bible were more clear on this topic uh it is not as clear as i would like it to be there are two places in scripture where where the issue of the age of accountability is addressed sort of the first place would be in second samuel 12 15 through 23 This, of course, is the section of Scripture where David had committed uh, adultery with Bathsheba. He had murdered uh, Bathsheba's husband. And then uh, Bathsheba was pregnant uh, by that act of adultery. And God took the child. The child was sick after birth. And David mourned for that child, prayed for that child, sought God to heal that child. Uh, And when the child died, at the very end of that, that time... David made this statement. He said to his servants who who wondered why he had stopped mourning after the child's death, He said, I, or he cannot come back to me, but I can go to him. So there was that affirmation that he believed he was going to go to where that child was. Now, in reading that through a New Testament lens, we understand that to be he was the child of a regenerate follower of God, even though he was a sinner. David was obviously a sinner, but he was forgiven by God. We understand that to mean that that child went to be with God in heaven, and then David was going to be with God in heaven. Now, that is not the full affirmation of what David intended there, okay? I don't think David had the theology of heaven that we have, because the New Testament hadn't been written, hadn't been clarified. David, I believe, when he said that, was affirming that the child went to death, Sheol, the place where the dead are, and David was going to go to that same place. Did he understand that child to be with God? Maybe, but I don't know that we can read the, the clarity of that there. That's one place that this issue is dealt with, the age of accountability. second place that the issue of an age of accountability comes from Numbers 14 and other places in the Exodus account. And this is the, the situation where the people of Israel had come out of Egypt. They had been led into the wilderness and they got to the edge of the promised land. They sent out the 12 spies. Remember, the 10 spies came back and said, the land is too strong, too many giants, too much, too much power from the Canaanites. Um, and then two spies came back, Joshua and Caleb, and said, we can take over the land. And um, God judged them for that, told them that they would be wandering in the wilderness for the next 38 and a half years, essentially 40 years of wilderness wandering. And the people of Israel said, hold on a second, we've sinned. They went in the, the land, tried to take over the land without God. They were defeated, and they ended up wandering in the wilderness. God's judgment on them in Numbers 14 was this. All of those adults, all of the responsible adults in, the, in, in that event would die in the wilderness. The ones that would not die, that would go into the promised land, were those who were not responsible for decision-making, And in that age category, it was 20 and under. Anybody that was 20 and under would survive the wilderness wanderings and would have a chance to go into the land of Canaan. Those are the two places, the only two places in Scripture where there's any kind of indication about an age of accountability. So what do we do with that? Let me say it this way. We must affirm what the Bible affirms. All right? Our job is not to come up with a theology that makes us feel good. Our job is to base our theology upon scriptural teaching. The scripture teaches at least two things about salvation with utter clarity. The total depravity of man, meaning that every person is a sinner, whether they're a baby or whether they're an adult. The Bible teaches that. It teaches the fallen condition of humanity. The book of Romans is clear about this. So, the total depravity of man and that salvation can only come through Jesus Christ. The Bible's clear about that. There is salvation not through human innocence. There is salvation only through Jesus Christ. So, let me, let me read Wayne Grudem on this topic. He writes in his Systematic Theology, he writes, Regarding the children of unbelievers who die at a very early age, the Scripture is silent. We simply must leave that matter in the hands of God and trust Him to be both just and merciful. If they are saved, it will not be on the basis of any merit of their own or any innocence that we might presume that they have. If they are saved, it will be on the basis of Christ's redeeming work. And their regeneration, like that of John the Baptist before he was born, will be by God's mercy and grace." So where does that leave us? Uh, the point to ponder is that we trust God in his justice and in his mercy. What is the age of accountability? I remember as, as a young preacher and teacher kind of speculating on that. Is it at five when children are able to, uh, to kind of know right from wrong? Is that when the age of accountability comes to pass? Is it at 12 when they become smart alecks and very, very sassy? Uh, Is it at 20 when they, you know, in scriptural language, when they become responsible as adults? Uh, If you want to study kind of biology and brain makeup, uh, really, did you know this, that a brain is not fully developed to think about processes, long-term decision-making until the mid-20s, 24, 25? That's why so many teenage boys do really stupid things that they would never even think about doing at 28, 29, and 30. Because they're not at all thinking about the future consequences of that really foolish thing that they're doing in their in their late teens. I have no idea. And when I say that, the Bible doesn't say that there is a specific item, an age of accountability, with regard to eternal security. Just It just doesn't talk about it. More than... What the Bible affirms is speculation. Where does that leave me as a pastor and you as church members? I think it leaves us in at least two places. Number one, we can trust that God is both just and merciful. We can absolutely trust that. So, so what happens if we, we get to heaven one day and we discover that the, the infant children of unbelievers didn't make it to heaven? I promise you we're not going to accuse God of injustice, okay? We're not, because we are the creatures. We have to trust that God is just, have to. We also can trust that God is absolutely merciful. And if God saves, takes to heaven, aborted children, children that die in infancy, if God does, it will be based on not their innocence, because no one is innocent. We're all sinners. We are tainted by human sin. If he takes those little ones to heaven, it will be through Jesus' death on the cross that sufficiently covers their, uh, their sins until they're ready to put their faith and trust in Christ. So listen, folks. Our job is to trust that our God is a God who loves and saves and redeems. Shouldn't affirm more than what the Bible affirms. We shouldn't say more than what the Bible says, but we can trust that God is both just and merciful. Let me say, where else that leaves us? It leaves us as Christian parents and grandparents and teachers and ministers and workers in Awana and workers in church and Sunday school. We should pray for our children that they will come to understand Jesus as Lord and Savior. The Bible says that there is salvation through only one name. There is n- no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that that it is far more likely that a child will come to faith in Jesus between the ages of 4 and 17 than it is that they will come to faith in Jesus after 17. So what, what does that mean? It means that we ought to share the gospel, we ought to pray for their souls, we ought to Beg that God will bring our children and our grandchildren to faith in Him and not trust in something that we don't, that we aren't sure about, that the Bible isn't, hasn't clearly articulated, but we trust in what the Bible does clearly articulate that Jesus invites the little children to come to Him. He invites us to have childlike faith and He invites us to put our faith and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. I'll be honest with you, I wish I could tell you something different about the age of accountability. I'm just going to tell you what the Bible says. Uh, practically and personally, I trust in the mercy of God and in the justice of God. I would tell you what I think, but I'm not going to. Because what I think would be my opinion, and, and I, I, I just trust in the mercy of God and the justice of God. And if you can trust God for your own soul, then I'm going to be honest with you, I think we can trust God for all the souls of those that he's responsible for uh so there we go let me give you let me give you the second or the last of the three kind of phrases it's the sinner's prayer sinner's prayer now we could spend a lot of time on this i think we'll spend a little less time on this than we did on the other ones and here's why i'm going to ask you where is the sinner's prayer found in the Bible? It's not there. Okay? It's not there. Now, what does that mean? This has incredibly practical implications for how we think about conversion, salvation, and and what that looks like. The reason I'm even talking about the sinner's prayer in this capacity is because I've been at revival services and conferences and events. I've been at those where youth conferences, the pastor would have all of the people in the congregation stand up and repeat after him the sinner's prayer. Maybe you've been there too. He wanted everybody in the room to say the sinner's prayer. Okay? Uh, That always bothered me and bugged me because you never see that in Scripture as anything that we're supposed to do. Here's why. We are saved by God through faith. We are saved by God through faith, not by our words or our works or through a formula. So here's, here's why I'm bringing this up. We've talked about evangelism. We've talked about sharing the gospel with our neighbors, with our friends, with our children and grandchildren. And some of you might say, well, what do we do when we get to that point of where that person is ready to trust in Jesus? Should we lead them in a sinner's prayer? You can, all right? Let me affirm this. Praying, confessing our sins, trusting in Jesus through the language of a prayer, like a sinner's prayer, is not wrong. It's just not what the Bible tells us has to happen for salvation to take place. Prayer it can be the mechanism through which we express trust in God. But I know a lot of people that have come to faith in God apart from anything that would be like a sinner's prayer. Even recently, I can tell you stories of people who came to know Jesus that faith happened in them in a moment. And their testimony is, I just believed. They didn't bow their knee. They didn't pray a certain set of words. They didn't repeat a prayer after me or anybody else. Yet salvation happened. Let me give you some scriptural affirmations God is not a genie in a bottle who serves our wishes, nor is he a deity to be controlled by our means. God is free, sovereign, and personal. Um, What do I mean by God is not a genie in a bottle? So sometimes the way that sinner's prayer has been applied is as if all you have to do is repeat those words and it's like a magic formula, you'll automatically be saved. Okay, My own personal testimony, I've shared with you that I, I, had, I had experiences that were not saving experiences as a child and as a teenager until I came to genuine faith in Jesus at 18. I prayed the sinner's prayer on multiple occasions prior to my conversion. The, the, a, a sinner's prayer doesn't save someone. Repeating words doesn't save someone. God saves someone. God saves anyone who's ever saved. The prayer can be a means of trust, but it's not an automatic means of trust. And I've been in too many places and heard too many poor communicators of Scripture and salvation Treat it as if all you got to do is repeat the words and you'll be saved, you'll be converted. That's treating God as a genie in a bottle, like, like God is here to grant my wishes, and if I just say the right words the right way, God's going to do that. Or it treats God as if He's controlled by what we do, folks. God is not controlled by what we say and do, God it does not owe us a response to anything we say and do. God is free. Sovereign and absolutely personal. He's the one who's in charge. That's why it's very important for us to realize he's the one who saves. Our words don't save us. Our prayers don't save us. God's bigger and beyond even our expression of uh, of how we come to him. He just is. So prayer can be the confession of lordship. That's the next line. Prayer can be the confession of lordship and faith in Jesus' resurrection. But the formula of the sinner's prayer is just simply not demanded biblically. You'll not find it. Now, now when I I lead people to to pray, almost every time, it's not not every time, but almost every time, I let that person pray completely on their own. You say, "Can you really trust them?" Well, let, let me let me I'm not trusting them. You say this very clearly. If God is working in the heart of someone to bring about salvation, do you honestly think he will let them mess up a prayer that would keep them out of heaven? I'm going to just keep my head shaking resoundingly. No, he's not going to let that happen. If God is the one who saves, he's the one who's going to bring about their heart to conversion at the right time. We don't have to manipulate that. I don't have to coerce that. God is very good at saving people. He's been doing so for millennia. He doesn't need my help to make sure that takes place in that moment. He uses us without doubt. He uses the communicated gospel. He uses people to lead one another to faith. And there is, let me tell you, some of you pray to sinners prayer to receive Jesus. I say that to say amen. It absolutely can be a means. But if we use it as a formula, we've, we, we've twisted it and made it something that it's not. Does that make sense? Are you all tracking with me? I'm, I'm not trying to shake your faith. I'm just saying God's bigger than our use of a formula to bring about someone's conversion experience. Let me give you a verse of scripture that, that kind of flows out of that. Acts 16.31. It's the, the story of the, uh, the, the jailer, the Philippian jailer. You Remember, Paul was praying, and they were singing, and they didn't leave the jail even when the jail cells were open. And the jailer thought he was going to die, and he actually was about to take his own life. Paul said, don't harm yourself, and then preach the gospel to them. The, the jailer said this, what must I do to be saved? I mean, there is no clearer opportunity for anybody in all of Scripture... Anybody, I mean, Paul could have said, here's what you do. You bow down with me. I'm going to lead you in a sinner's prayer. Confess your sins and your faith in Jesus, and you will be saved. The jailer said, what must I do to be saved? Remember what Paul said? Acts 16, 31, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Believe. He didn't give him a prayer to pray. He said, believe in Jesus. And you know what the jailer did? He went home, told his family, they believed, they all believed, and they were saved. Go to Acts chapter 10. The story of Peter and Cornelius. Peter's preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. For the very first time, the inauguration of the ministry to the Gentiles. To that we ought to say amen, because that meant we get to be a part of the gospel just like every, just like the Jews did. Peter preached the gospel to the to the Gentiles. And as he was preaching the gospel, the Holy Spirit fell on them, and they started speaking in tongues there wasn't an invitation there wasn't a praying over there wasn't a laying hands on there wasn't a praying with there wasn't a leading in the sinner's prayer none of that took place the Holy Spirit fell and they started speaking in tongues meaning that conversion took place in that moment not apart from faith as a result of faith but took place in that moment so here's what I would tell you share the gospel and do not worry about the result no, you don't have to I mean, I'm mean, i not saying don't, don't ask people. I ask people every time I get a chance, are you ready to put your faith and trust in Jesus? And if they say yes, then I say, would you tell him that? Trust Jesus to be your Savior? Absolutely invite them to do that. Absolutely. Salvation is both a process and a moment. A process in the sense that God convicts and draws and moves in our hearts to bring us to that moment of putting our faith and trust in him. There is an experiential moment. Absolutely. Trust that God's in control of that. He is. We don't have to manipulate it. And when I talk to children, uh, one of the questions I use with, with little ones is, if you could trust Jesus today or if you could wait a week, what would you do? And, and the reason I ask that is because there's a sense of urgency that happens with children when the Holy Spirit's at work. I mean, my kids are urgent about ice cream and video games, all right? They're not urgent about homework, and they're not urgent about going to church, They're not urgent about spiritual things by nature. No kid is. But when a child looks at you and says, I want to trust Jesus today, you can be assured that the Holy Spirit is at work in their hearts and drawing them to faith in Jesus. And I've done that over the course of my entire ministry here at Wilkesboro Baptist Church. I won't tell you the name of the family, but about five or six years ago, I talked with, uh, with two children and their parents about coming to faith in Jesus. And they weren't ready. They didn't know the gospel. They weren't ready to trust Jesus as the Lord and Savior. They weren't ready to talk about it. And, and I, I didn't let them follow through with baptism. They didn't profess faith in Jesus. And I'll be honest with you, there was a part of me that wondered, okay, should I have pressed a little farther? Well, all it took was a few years And their parents come into a place where they were going to follow Jesus publicly with their life, and then both those kids came to know Jesus clearly in the last year in the life of our church. And it just is another reminder that I don't have to manipulate God's working; God is going to do His work and bring about salvation. So that gets gets us to these takeaways. Let me give you four takeaways real quick: the theological takeaways. Where do all these issues intersect? These issues in salvation find resolution in God's sovereignty, not our intelligence, comprehension, or clarity. The best thing we can do is think about God's sovereignty in all things and certainly God's sovereignty in salvation. You can find resolution, look at the greatness and the glory and the grandeur and the majesty and the personal wonder of God bringing about salvation in the hearts and lives of children. And adults and teenagers. He is able. So let's focus on God's sovereignty. That's where theology becomes incredibly practical. I know I'm a theology nerd. I love teaching this stuff. I would do it all the time. I'm going to do a little bit more of it Sunday. In, in, the, in a wonderful text of scripture. I'm, I'm not sure it's safe for me to say this. But I think the, the section we're going to preach on Sunday from the last part of Hebrews 12. Is my favorite section of all of Hebrews. that's really hard to say. It is a beautiful two paragraphs of Scripture. And God's really working with me in some things about that that text of Scripture. But it is tremendously practical for us to remember that God's sovereign. He's got your children and grandchildren. We can trust that He's at work in their hearts and lives. We can pray. We can invite. We can trust that He's going to work through the communicated gospel because the gospel is the power of God and salvation but we don't have to manipulate the circumstances. So that's the theological takeaway. The worship takeaway. God's greatness is most personally revealed in our salvation, which should lead us to humbly worship God through Christ. If you didn't do anything to earn or bring about your salvation, God alone gave it to you, then our response is humble worship, always and ever. It's humble worship. That's our, that's our obligation. That's what we're called to do. The evangelistic takeaway. It is the power of God through his gospel that saves. So we must willingly, regularly, and faithfully share the gospel and trust God to do the rest. I, am, uh, I shouldn't be. I'm 43, almost 43 years old, been in ministry more than 25, 20 years. I shouldn't be surprised. But God works through the communication of his gospel. He said He would, Romans 1:16. The gospel's 117, the gospel is the power of God and the salvation. The communicated gospel is powerful to save. So folks, what we ought to do in our regular conversations is tell people the gospel. What we ought to beg that they do is hear the gospel. The reason we ought to invite people to church is so that they will hear the gospel, and guess what God does when they hear the gospel? People come to faith in Jesus. It's going to, it has happened for 2,000 years. It's going to happen this week. It's going to happen next month. It's going to happen the entirety of, of our lives on planet Earth. So the best thing that we can do, this isn't manipulation. It's not, it's, not, it's not us coercing. The best thing we can do is communicate the gospel regularly. So grandparents, if you're worried about your grandchildren, make time. To talk to them about the gospel. Parents, if you're concerned about your children and their conversion, make time to talk to them about the gospel. Even if it's as simple as sitting them down and you sharing with them your testimony and saying, Here's how I came to faith in Jesus, and I just want you to know it. The gospel is the power of God and the salvation. And we don't have to do anything beyond that. I'm not saying we don't invite, them, I'm just saying we don't have to manipulate, we don't have to coerce, we don't have to twist people's arms, because that, that, that can give false assurances. I had a seminary professor came back from the mission field, and he went to his. Uh, he, he and his wife found a home church, and at vacation Bible school one year, they were sitting down. It's the the night of vacation Bible school. The pastor shares the gospel. That happens every year at vacation Bible school. We do it here, but in that vacation Bible school, the pastor asked this question. He says, "How many of you kids want to go to heaven when you die?" Okay. Nearly every kid shot their hand up, I want to go to heaven when I, when I die. So the pastor went on to say, well, here's what I want all of you to do. I want all of you to pray this prayer after me. The pastor had all the kids pray the sinner's prayer after him, and he proceeded then to include all of those children in baptism and all of those children in conversion. Uh, and, and the problem with that is obviously what you're wondering is how many of those kids really believed what they prayed. I have no idea, but probably not all of them. Maybe not any of them in that moment. Because all kids want to go to heaven when they die. Everybody does, unless you're an idiot. Or unless you just don't believe anything to do with the Bible. Right? And anybody, anybody, anybody can get somebody to say something. I could get you to repeat anything after me. Or it's anyone that's, that's spiritually sensitive. That doesn't save you. Only God does. And so I, here's why that matters for us as a congregation, for me as a pastor. What we don't want to do is affirm someone's experience of profession of faith as salvation if, if we're not as sure as we can be that it's God at work, right? So I don't mean to manipulate. God is really, really good at, sharing, at saving people. Share the gospel. Trust him to do the, do the rest. Okay, lastly. Since God has uh, been sovereign in my salvation, I, we, can trust him to be sovereign in the salvation of others. So watch this, just as a way of reminder. If, If you would go back and think about all that God did to bring you to conversion. I'm not just talking about the moment, the experience of your conversion. I'm talking about the lead up to it. Every single one of you who has a genuine conversion story could tell me the lead up to your salvation. Whether you were four or whether you are 40. You could tell me the conviction in your heart. You could tell me how you felt. You could tell me the ups and downs. You could tell me the attempts you tried to make. You could tell me the guilt you felt. I mean, all sort of descriptions would come if all of you started sharing the lead up to your salvation. And yet, all of us who are genuinely converted will, will come to this conclusion. God did something to change my heart, and we could, if not give the day and moment. I don't mean to say it that way. We could, we know when that we know when it happened. We know, and we know that God is the one who did that. So, if you think about all the things God did, allowed, caused, convicted, brought about in your life to bring you to that moment of conversion, and then think about all that God's done to reshape you into the image of Jesus. If God was that sovereign in your conversion. He's going to be that sovereign in anyone's conversion. So what we ought to do. If we trust that God's sovereign. We ought to pray for the conversion of sinners. You hear me every Wednesday night. Every Wednesday night. Almost to a point. I pray for the salvation. The children that are in Iwana, The middle schoolers that are upstairs. Because I know. A handful of them. I know the conversations they're having. I know the way they're talking with their moms and dads. But I know it's up to God to save them. If I can trust God to be sovereign in my own salvation, I can trust him to be sovereign in theirs. Pray for their conversion. Share the gospel with sinners. It really comes down to that simplicity. Amen? Amen? So uh, we're, we're, not, we're not but a couple of weeks away from our summer break. Uh, now, our summer break's not really a break. You're going to hear teaching and preaching from some others in the life of our church over the summer. I'll have a schedule for you probably next week, uh, at least the starting point of a schedule, I'm waiting on some confirmations from some, from some others who will be using those Wednesday nights to teach and preach. Uh, but next week, what I'm going to do is I'm going to lead into a, a, a summer series on Sundays that I'm going to... Uh, preach on by, by trying to bring a connection. So we spent now, February last year when we started our theology series, I'm going to kind of try to bring us back full circle before we start a new, a new um, uh, doctrine and just kind of why is it that we depend on scripture and how does scripture connect all the dots between the doctrine of salvation and the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine, uh, uh, the other doctrines that we've looked at. Why is that important? Because, folks, here's the reality. For us to remain stable and confident as Christians in a growing secular culture, pagan world that is around us, we are going to have to have some roots and some foundation in something that's not us. Um, And so I'm going to try to make some connections next week. Some of what we're going to talk about in the summer is going to kind of lead into that. And then in the fall, when we come back and begin this regular schedule, we're going to be in the doctrine of ecclesiology. That's the doctrine of the church. And spend some time thinking about that in depth. So uh, that's, our, that's our, our game plan. I hope to see you next week. Remember, next week, not only will we meet here, but we will have the baccalaureate service for Central Wilkes High School. Uh, that will take place at uh, the beginning about 7 o'clock. Tad will be speaking in the sanctuary for that. So we're going to have a crowd of folks uh, next wednesday at church so be welcoming and be warm for those that are our guests and uh, thank you for being here and thank you for your help with tables and chairs good night and god bless thank you for listening to this podcast remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found